And so I think um, Tolkien was a bit disappointed that Lewis didn't become a Roman Catholic. <laughs> but they did remain friends. And um, that was certainly a, a level on which they connected. Because, in fact, as writers, they often didn't see eye to eye. Uh, they had a different writing style. Um, wow. So they, you know, they would have their, their grumbles, but they had so much more in common than they had yeah. that separated them. From the pages of Church Growth Magazine, helping church leaders implement their vision, this is the Church Growth Magazine podcast with your host, Brian Boyd. Welcome to the Church Growth Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Brian Boyd. And uh, so good to have you uh, all join us again today on this edition of the Church Growth Magazine podcast. As we record this, it is nearly Christmas time and uh, and still a lot of, uh, of stress in the world. But today we want to talk about something a little more uh, lighthearted and uh, not, not uh, hopefully bring a little joy to your life. Uh, I'm really excited to welcome author Julia Golding to our podcast today. Good morning, Julia. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. Julia is a, a award-winning author uh, from Oxford, England, and in, uh, uh, in full transparency, um, I've had the pleasure of working with Julia on a, a couple of uh, her projects on the marketing side, and I've uh, gotten to know her and her family, and it's really been a joy uh, to, to become a friend with, with Julia. Uh, but here on the magazine podcast, we talk about the business side of, of church growth and and really what it means to run a church and, and talk about that. And and Julia, you've been working on a really interesting project. But before we talk about that, um, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and, and what you do there in uh, in, in London, in the Oxford. Thanks. Uh, well, I make my living by writing. So I started off my career writing for children, which reflected very much where I was in my own life with small children at home. And it seemed something really special to be able to offer my own children something unique, um, but also managed to find a publisher for that. So there's a number of books I've written for a younger age group. Um, so some of them are historical novels uh, and some of them are fantasy novels and some of them are adventure stories. So it really not been bound by one genre. And then as my children grew up and as my own interests sort of shifted, I've been writing for adults. And the way I've sort of ring-fenced the appropriateness of the material is I've used other names for the older material uh, so that there wasn't a kind of carryover. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I've been doing um, crime novels, psychological novels under uh, another name, Joss Sterling. And it's great fun. I've also branched out into screenwriting recently and working on a couple of projects with some filmmakers. You never know with screenwriting if it'll actually see the light of day, but I've really enjoyed the process of teaching myself a new craft uh, all around story, which is really what's in my DNA is story. And it's also part of my faith because um, how I sort of approach faith is very much as it, it's part of a story which... I believe God is telling us um, mm -hmm. and the way he's communicating with us. And so that sort of somehow links very deeply into my, uh, you know, my motivations and why I'm, why I'm a writer. That's great. Now, have you, I know your books are published there in the UK. What is your, what is your worldwide audience been like for your publications? 
well, it, so I think what happens with writing, I've written over 60 novels. So you tend to get one or two, if you're lucky, one or two big hits and then the rest sort of, <laughs> you know, they, they, they carry on um, on a more modest level. And so my big hits have been, my very first novel was called, or is called The Diamond of Drury Lane. And it's set in the theatre in London called Drury Lane 200 years ago. Uh, and that won a lot of prizes and was published in lots of countries. And then and for a teen audience, I published a, a novel called Finding Sky, which was the beginning of a whole series. This coincided with my daughter becoming a teenager. And I wanted to write her some material, which I thought was appropriate for that stage in life. And I published that under the name Joss Sterling. And that's gone to so many different countries. I've lost um, track of the number of translations it's had uh, and I suppose if you add everything up I must have sold over a million copies though it's, it is very hard to track uh, so I've had a real privilege and what what is so lovely about writing is that because a book becomes very personal to the person who reads it they absorb it into their own imagination and it can sometimes reach people at very important times in their life that you often get the most moving emails back, you know, from the person who's never read a whole book before, who's managed to sit down and read your novel or has found something in it that's comforting. Uh, and it's a really, um, I think that responsibility and privilege is something which I really value in this career of being a writer. It's We've had a few authors on this podcast, um, a pastor in Seattle named Dean Curry, um, Squire Rushnell and Louise Duarte, who've written the Godwink series. And I think it was Squire who told me once that his job as an author, and I want your opinion on, opinion on this, his job as an author is to, is to um, uh, create the content, of course, and the, the publisher's job is to get it on the shelf, but his job is to get it off the shelf. <laughs> like, the, does that make any sense at all? It's like, uh, yes. do, yeah. is, it, is it hard to get the books out? And then my second question to that is, in this age where, where more people are reading books on iPads and digital devices, has that affected the consumption of, of the books you've written? So to the first part about your responsibility getting it off the shelf, I think that is something that's quite modern. When I first started um, writing back in the beginning of the 2000s, um, there was still the, what I would call a more traditional form of publishing, where indeed you were taken on by a publisher and you became part of their stable, they called it, and mm -hmm. their marketing department and was responsible for making sure you were out in contact with the public. But what was coming up was social media. And then suddenly authors became a kind of, I don't know, a commodity or a brand, I suppose. So if you're, um, if you want to reach your readership in such a competitive marketplace as general fiction, you have to find your way of reaching, cutting through the noise. Perhaps the last big name who didn't have to do that might've been JK Rowling thinking about it. She did seem to be a genuine word of mouth, old fashioned, uh, mm, success story. Sure. But I think yeah. a lot of people since then, they've either come, the really big names have come through either having a large social media following or they've done the fan fiction route, which so already brought in with them a, 
a sort of following. Or one of the things in the UK uh, is they already have a profile in some other industry like comedy, uh, which is highly, <laughs> I am not a stand-up comedian, but if I was, it would be a huge advantage uh, because what then happens, uh, and I know we're talking to people interested in business, what then happens is the publishing company imports an existing profile. So traditional authors like me, we are now reinventing ourselves as well. Um, I do. A, I try and be as creative as I can. I've started a podcast. Um, so one of my interests, I have a, a lot of interests, but one of my interests is Jane Austen. Uh, so I've started a podcast about Jane Austen's perspective on modern life, which is a sort of jokey thing. Uh, I'm doing it with a, another Jane Austen expert. And so trying to reach a, a more general audience who then might circle back around and look at your books because I'm doing a a novel series about the young Jane Austen for children that starts next year. So that kind of initiative, uh, mm-hmm. and indeed how we met, Brian, we met on a, uh, we were looking into making a cartoon based on one of the books I've written. Right. So just thinking outside the box, outside the traditional parallels. And I think this is where it works with a, so my role in mainstream publishing to somebody listening to this, who's thinking about their church and how that works as a business you can't just stay where we've always been because that ground is disappearing. So you have to think, what else What else can that story be? How else might I be able to reach people who are interested in it? Uh, there's a big problem for authors about actually making money at the moment. We may be selling more and making less. It's a bit like the problems the music industry went through with the exactly. rise of streaming. Uh, and right. that goes to the second part of your question, which is about the digital market uh, and particularly the rise of Amazon, which is part of that story. Uh, it's I'd say it's a mixed picture. My adult novels are primarily digital creatures, children's novels because um, parents like to see the children off screen. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Put that yeah, down, pick up a book. It's a good alternative to the, the blue light from the screen. So that still has a physical book element. But the adult novel is very much somebody reading on the train, on their commute, which is pre-COVID, obviously, or, or just reading on their iPad at home. Uh, and those books are usually really heavily, heavily discounted. So they may be selling for 99 cents or a dollar. Um, and then you imagine what the slice of that for the author is something like right. 25 cent or something like that. So you have to sell an awful lot of digital copies to start actually making any money. Uh, yeah. And it, it's, 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 it's just how it is. I, I'm not lamenting the fact it's just an inevitable trend in that market. Uh, and there, I would quite like to go back to have sort of started my career about 20 years earlier, but that wasn't an option. Um, So I've got to work out how to navigate where we are now. Sure. You know, it's, it's, uh, it is fascinating how, how even in the last nine months since uh, COVID came, came to uh, be upon us, how, how we've shifted the way we work, talk, meet. Uh, It's, it's fascinating. You know, there's a couple authors that really have impacted, uh, had an impact on the world. Um, and we're going to talk about them now. And that's one of the main reasons I wanted to meet with you today on this podcast is 
discuss uh, the role of J.R.R. Tolkien and also uh, C.S. Lewis. Mm. You're working on a really interesting project right now called Project Northmore. Um, and uh, there's there's a uh, fascinating correlation to C.S. Lewis as well, who's had, of course, his writings had a significant impact in the role of the church and Christianity. Yeah. Uh, tell us tell us what's uh, what Project Northmore is all about. Okay, so I'm sure everybody listening to this will have some familiarity with Tolkien, either because they've read Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, or because they've watched the films. Um, he is definitely a global figure. What you may not know is that he was in the same writing circle as C.S. Lewis. And this group was uh, around in the middle of the 20th century in Oxford. They called themselves the Inklings. Um, and they, these are you have to imagine this group of professorial chaps who would meet down the pub after work uh, for a pint of beer, smoke their pipes and read their work in progress. Sometimes this might be a translation from something academic because they worked on medieval and old English and other areas like that. But very often it was their fiction. So for C.S. Lewis, that would be maybe parts of his Narnia stories um, or his science fiction works. And for Tolkien, it's Lord of the Rings um, and The Hobbit. So it's quite fun really to think of this group having produced two major, what the movie industry would call franchises. <laughs> but this came out of the very humble origins of Oxford pubs and uh, friendly conversation. Now, you're, uh, now, those are nearby you too, right? You're oh, not yeah, too yeah. far from the... Where okay. I'm sitting at this very moment in time, if I went out my front door and walked south for five minutes, I would reach the pub where this conversation happened. That's amazing. Uh, cool. Yeah. Great. But also near near here is um, the house where Tolkien lived, and in the sort of key years of his life, this is nineteen thirty to nineteen forty seven. This is the years in which he raised his family. He had uh, four children: he and his wife Edith, and um, it's the years where he spent the Second World War and where he wrote both The Hobbit and the vast majority of Lord of the Rings. So if you're looking at his life, this is the house that sums up his most famous stage. And this is on the market at the moment. So I um, I thought, well, why not try and get it for the Tolkien enthusiasts out there, of which they're a legion, um, and turn it into a a creative centre. There isn't really a place in, in the world dedicated to Tolkien in this way. I mean, you can go and visit the movie sets down in, um, I think it's Matamata down in New Zealand, which is where they've got Hobbiton. But obviously that's a sort of New Zealand uh, fantasy film version. It's not really Tolkien. Whereas Middle Earth, and particularly the Shire, is around Oxford. Uh, it's the villages, the woods, the streams, the fields, the hills of where I live. And I thought it would be very inspiring for people to be able to come and stay in the house, learn about Tolkien and maybe uh, learn to write themselves, learn how to write fantasy. And uh, there's also a lot of people who do Tolkien illustrations. So also have that. There is a link to faith too, which is um, this group, the, the Inklings uh, was set apart by their strong religious beliefs C.S. Lewis, I'm sure everybody knows, is famous as a Christian apologetic, uh, and particularly his 
stories like Narnia have a very strong Christian allegory in them. Tolkien takes an entirely different approach, and it's one which I feel very sympathetic towards because I feel it sits very happily in the mainstream, appealing to people of no faith as well as faith. It sort of makes a much more a threshold that people can meet on rather than divide into separate camps. And that's because uh, he was a very devout Roman Catholic. He he sort of buried or he had this idea of something called mythopoeia, which is the structure of your story, the values, the meaning, the um, the message is like the skeleton underneath the story. And then you can put on top of that your fantasy. Another way of thinking about it in more modern parlance is to think about those CGI creatures that they create for fantasy films, like famously Gollum. If you strip away the rendering of the skin and the hair and the eyes, what you've got underneath it is Andy Serkis's performance turned into dots, which is then run through a computer. So if you're thinking about that level, you've got a sort of performance or a message which can then be dressed in different ways. And that's a kind of the, uh, an image of what this, the approach of writing that Tolkien took is that you, you have a bedrock of your core beliefs underneath it, uh, but then you put the fantasy around it so that the values are there, but not so obviously allegorical as you have in the sort of Narnia approach. So take, for example, the quest in Lord of the Rings. Frodo carries the ring all the way through a sort of almost like a a real sort of path of suffering. But when he gets to the cracks of Mount Doom, and this is a plot spoiler if you haven't read it, but I think I'll assume you have, he can't actually do it on his own. He cannot overcome his own temptation to seize this power. And it needs the intervention of another creature who's Gollum, the broken creature, to actually take it from him and then fall into the fire. So it's sort of providential that that happens. And it's beautifully described in the book that there's a number of sources for that. There could be some overarching plan that's sometimes hinted at by the wisest characters like Galadriel. But there's also a very direct link to an act of mercy that happened in The Hobbit when Bilbo chose not to kill Gollum. And that act of mercy is why he's there at the end to save, well, you know, save Middle Earth. So I think that's beautiful. You you can see um, the sort of Christian parallels about, you know, we can't do things on our own strength, but -hmm. it also has a very uh, human application which appeals to people from all backgrounds. And that's what I find so encouraging about uh, looking at Tolkien is I do think that he speaks and is relevant to all kinds of people from all different cultures. And it's great that he's coming from his own Roman Catholic background, but isn't it brilliant that he can talk to people from sure. all faiths and none? Sure. Now I understand that at this home down the street from you, 20 Northmore, uh, C.S. Lewis was, was invited and spent time oh, there. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Tell, what, what, Tell us about that. So um, probably, again, I'm not sure how much people know about C.S. Lewis, but in the 20s, he was a very 
convinced atheists. There was this idea around at the time, which um, came from a book called The Golden Bough, um, which was a, a look at world myths. And the writer traced world myths and found patterns, in particular the pattern of the sacrifice god, so like the crop god or uh, Odin hanging on the tree, which is a Norse story. Um, so the idea of sacrificing the sort of sun or the god in order to benefit others. Um, and that was then used to say, oh, yes, but the Christian story is just another of these stories. It's popped up again, isn't special. Uh, it's just, you know, part, part of world myths. And looking at it in a sort of making the the Jesus story, just one of many competing myths on the same theme. And C.S. Lewis had very much been persuaded by this. And of course, he'd been through the horrors of the First World War and who was, you know, no one can blame that generation for feeling very sceptical uh, as a result. Anyway, uh, so come, on, come the inklings, come the conversation with Tolkien and a, another man called Owen Barfield. They had a series of conversations which has been sort of termed the great conversation because it carried on over a number of nights but really is the same conversation where they both were talking to Lewis and saying well how about thinking about it like this that if there is a god how is he going to talk to us would he not use the the vehicle of myths to prepare the way to get us to think in a term so he's not producing something completely novel. He's saying, this story is there. It's a pointer to, to the chief story I want to tell you, which is the one about my son. And, and, and that really was a tipping point for C.S. Lewis to think it's not obviously the only reason why someone would um, become a believer, but it is an intellectual persuasion that he found convincing and I think he needed to be convinced on an intellectual level as well as a, a level of personal, you know, private feelings about faith. And so I think um, Tolkien was a bit disappointed that Lewis didn't become a Roman Catholic, <laughs> but they did remain friends. And um, that was certainly a, a level on which they connected. Because in fact, as writers, they often didn't see eye to eye. Uh, they had a different writing style. Um, wow. So they, you know, they would have their their grumbles, but they had so much more in common than they had yeah. that separated them. Well, to be, you know, to cliche, to be a fly on the wall, to uh, to to see them at the pub or at the home and watch the conversation, how how fascinating that would have been to to uh, to be part of that. I think it would be love. You're right. I'd love to see a dramatization of this because I can imagine this enormous sort of tidal wave of feeling going through C.S. Lewis, hearing this sort of good news, a way out of where he found himself, all done in a very professorial, restrained, stiff upper lip, (laughs) British uh, gentlemanly exchange. Uh, It it would be, as you say, it would be wonderful to have that time machine to go back and, and listen. And that's part well, the, of the reason why I really would love this house to um, be bought for a place for people to come and stay, to explore 
um, Tolkien and the other Inklings also to explore their own creativity because I think he has enormous potential to uh, to unite us and to sort of teach us how we can find creative common ground. That's what I'd really love to do. So it's that's why uh, we launched Project Northmore. It's a it's a big ask though because the house costs. Um, four million pounds because it's in a very expensive area of real estate um and we're obviously in a difficult global climate but if everybody who loves Tolkien chips in what they can it's achievable without anybody being overstretched and that's really what we're trying to do in the next few months is raise the money say if you like Tolkien and you want to have access to this house by coming for to stay for courses or talks then please, um, please donate. It's uh, it, it is quite an undertaking. Uh, I know that the the campaign was months in planning and kicked off at the beginning of December, and uh, so far I, I think it's uh, going well. I mean, there's been quite an outpouring, a, a lot of conversation, um, uh, lots of discussion on social media. Uh, I know CNN, uh, USA Today, uh, uh, newspapers and press, the BBC have covered it. Yeah. And uh, it's great to see the discussion. Um, how can how can listeners uh, to this podcast get involved in, in the project? Well, there's a number of ways. Uh, the, the, the simplest, obviously, is just to donate. But uh, it's also to spread the word because... I don't expect anybody to come forward and say, here's a million pounds, but if everybody's got $25 or uh, whatever they can, they can spare, then the more people who do that, the better situation we're in. Um, also, if, if we do get the house and you're interested in exploring um, this whole theme of Tolkien and the Inklings further, then obviously we'd love to welcome you to the house. So there'll be future opportunities, we hope. Uh, for people to come and actually stay, bring a small group. Uh, because I think Tolkien is so loved by everybody that it just feels right and it just feels the right time to have a place where people can go and to really um, sort of sit with that legacy. That's good. I, for um, if, So if you're interested in learning more about Project Northmore and uh, and, and the uh, the home uh, where J.R.R. Tolkien uh, lived, uh, you can visit Project Northmore, N-O-R-T-H-M-O-O-R, more with two O's, dot org, projectnorthmore.org. Uh, we'll also put the link in the show notes to this podcast. Yeah, um, I mean, I, we have I, to say that we are trying to buy a house which is in a commercial market. So we, we are right. in a race against time. Um, so we don't have months. Well, we have a few months, but we don't have months and months to do this. So... Um, please, if you're, if you're listening and think, yeah, I'd like to support that. And, and there's all sorts of levels of ways to engage, uh, and reward systems of, you know, depending how much you want to get involved, all of that detail is on the website. Um, please, please try and activate it now because this is when we need the support. And, and, uh, everybody who gives no matter what level, um, there's a beautiful, uh, certificate that you'll receive um, via email and it's numbered and has your name on it and it's really a quite quite a nice little uh, gift and so it's a it's a good thing to give uh, give a loved one even if you wanted to do that um, so the the church 
globally is seeing uh, quite a change, uh, Julia. Uh, now during COVID, um, church has gone online, mostly. Uh, some parts of the world, uh, and I, every, every state in the United States is different, and I imagine all over the world is different too. Um, what's church like there in, in the UK right now? As, as we tape this, uh, we're still in, in COVID season. Um, uh, what's, the, what's the church landscape, landscape been like there in London? Uh, well, uh, we've had, I think, a stricter approach in the UK uh, than in the US. So we had two periods of strict lockdown where um, the, first, the first lockdown, there were no church services. Uh, and then there were socially distanced church services where you have to book in uh, and, or watch online. And then another lockdown where, again, we went back to just online. And now for the Christmas period, there are socially distanced services, but I think we'll go to another lockdown, uh, even though the vaccine is already rolling out here. So what that has meant, um, so for example, uh, what I do on a Sunday now <laughs> is I, uh, I sit having a cup of coffee, watching my dearly beloved friends uh, in the church congregation. We're, we're all contributing. That's quite nice. Yeah. The fact that we all send in like the prayers or the reading or the drama. Um, the church has put uh, cameras up so that we didn't have this originally, but now the the leadership team and the musicians can actually play in the church building. That's nice. That makes a big difference. You know, I got a bit tired of seeing my vicar's, you know, beige walls. So at least we're now back in the church. Yeah. But one thing I've done, um, because from the writing background, is I wrote a Zoom nativity for the church to do for their crib service. Because normally we'd have like hundreds of people turning up as angels and shepherds, the kids, this is. Huh, really? Um, wow. Yeah. So I've done a Zoom version of that, which plays on all the jokes about uh, the things you can do under lockdown. So Herod, okay. is, Herod is on Zoom. Um and there's a lot of a lot of about uh, you know the fact that Mary's doing her homework, and Gabriel <laughs> pops up on on her screen to announce during the middle of a maths Come test. Come on, yeah, change of plan, yeah, does Mary. Somebody, does somebody forget to unmute themselves? I, that... I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, anyway, so but I only want to do that for one year. I think the joke is fine for one year, but I think next year I am lo I'm longing. I'm longing just to yeah. stand in a room with people and not have to be afraid of carrying yeah. home something because I've got, you know, elderly parents. So I've been very cautious. Um, sure. But it is, a, it is in, interesting in the wider picture of what church has become because, of course, it's also meant that people can – go to other churches just by finding their website. Uh, you can church hop. You can go and listen to a service from a church you used to belong to or dip into one which is in another country and another culture. So from that point of view, that's been very exciting. And I think for those people who find it difficult to get to church, um, it would be really good to continue a live streaming element. And it sort of kicked us a bit further into just as employment has changed to allow people to work from home, I think it might mean more, a more permanent change that at least one service each Sunday from most churches will have a live stream element to allow access. And I think that's to be welcomed. Yeah. 
I totally agree. Yeah, we we've enjoyed visiting uh, uh, our friends in Chennai, India, the Mohans. Uh, they they have uh, a great church service uh, every every Sunday, but for Saturday here for us, and it's been great to to visit them. Um, well, what a pleasure, Julia, to have you on our podcast today. Um, thank you for the insight. We we covered a lot of ground today, and uh, um, honestly, uh, we pray you have a, a great holiday season, and with your family and friends, and uh, and maybe we can all uh, visit the UK and and tour your uh, community at, at some point when we're through some of these uh, these challenges. I definitely look forward to the day. That'd be wonderful. It'd be great. Well. For more about Project Morthmore and uh, the foundation uh, that is is uh, looking to acquire uh, Professor Tolkien's home, uh, visit projectnorthmore.org, and all the information is there. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, as always, thank you for subscribing to the Church Growth Magazine podcast. Uh, you can find the podcast everywhere podcasts are listened to. Google, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Music, and more. So please tell a friend and hit that subscribe button so we can uh, uh, count you as one of our of our listeners. Uh, for Julia Golding, I'm your host, Brian Boyd. Thanks again, and uh, have a great holiday season from all of us here at the Church Growth Magazine Podcast. Mm-hmm.